You are listening to Sky Women, episode 23, Life and Leadership. In this episode, we are talking all about the challenges of childhood surrounded by poverty and addiction that could have had a very different ending. My special guest today is Dr. Jess DeShields. A community of guardian angels saw the potential in Jess and provided her the support and nurture that she needed to go on to achieve big things. She has already impacted the lives of so many and I can't wait to see what her leadership consulting firm will do for organizations growth in the future. Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OBGYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome, Sky community, to another exciting episode of Sky Women Podcast. I am so thrilled that you're here today. I have my good friend, Jess DeShields, with us. She is a mom, wife, PhD, leadership guru, and principal consultant and founder of Crescent Leadership, a consulting and executive coaching firm, which she has just launched. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're thrilled to have you. It's so fun to have people from different walks of life and bringing you on is like a walk down memory lane because everything I remember about high school essentially involved you, (laughs) whether it was pre-calculus or psychology class or running, like all of the things I remember um, us kind of running around together. So welcome. Thank you so much. It does seem like a lifetime ago, but wasn't too long. We're about, we're not that that far gone. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So in high school, I remember you moved to Livingston in 11th grade. And I remember thinking, wow, this girl is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, you have always had this innate leadership capacity and it's something that you fostered over the years. Absolutely. You know, growing up for me, wasn't exactly easy, as you know, I grew up in poverty and surrounded by addiction. And I haven't always shared all the details of my story, but I'm more open to talking about it now, especially because I know how I grew up really has shaped who I am today. Right. So how do you feel that you overcame that? Well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just tell you a little bit about kind of where we started and how maybe I got to where I am based on that. So my young mother, Phyllis, she divorced my father shortly after I was born. She never really, she never finished high school. And from her late teens, she wrestled with raising two girls and then two boys before she was 25 years old. And I think about, and I know you know this too, Carolyn, I think about how hard it is to raise one stubborn, smart eight-year-old girl. Absolutely. (laughs) My goodness. But my mom, she, without a high school education she, and always searching for work, she had to figure out how to manage four of us. But she was a force. And I look back now, and even though I didn't know it then, I was already just, just developing my strong sense of work ethic and resilience from her. But in her 30s, and I'm not sure how much of this she remember, but in her 30s, drug and alcoholism took her from us for a bit. And this was probably the most difficult period of my young life. I will tell you, we struggled and I still struggle with this concept or this idea or this feeling of food insecurity. We were hungry all the time. I was skin and bones. My mom would be gone sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks at a time. And my sister and I started working at a very young age just to make sure that our younger brothers had food and clothes. 
And sometimes when I tell this story, I think about how many children and young people go through the very thing that I did. And I think about how many of them succumb to the pressures of this type of environment. They fall victim to their environment and sink into this vicious cycle of poverty, addiction, and even crime. But for some reason, those tiny seeds that my mom planted in me from the early days of my young life took root. And she told me how smart I was. And she told me that I could do anything that I wanted to do. And she gave me tattered books, just piles of books. And by the time I was in second grade, I was already reading four to 500 page novels. But then she started fading into addiction. And she really started, I think she started to succumb to the pressures of her early life. And it was at that time that my teachers and members of our community started taking notice to our situation. And I often say the community raised me and my teachers and our guidance counselors and our neighbors, they were really the guardian angels that kept giving me opportunities when I was the kid that should have failed. Now, I was that kid that should not have made it. And school became a haven for me. Instead of drifting into the grips of different forms of the, the bad addiction, I guess you could say, that could have ended my life. I became addiction to, addicted to education and success, to being the best student and the best athlete. And I did. Even in spite of what was happening at home, I kept succeeding. And I graduated at the top of my high school class with honors. And I went on to become the first member of my family to graduate from college. Wow. Yeah. There's definitely some innate drive there. What, what's the age difference between you and your sister? She is uh, almost two years older than me. Okay. And then your brothers are younger by me. About four years separate me and my first brother and then about six, me and my second. Okay. 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 So you guys were working age and could earn some money for the family. Wow. Wow. Yes. I worked at the nursing home in Booker, Texas when I was a freshman in high school. Mm -hmm. And so I became a nurse's aide, a certified nurse's aide early on. And I will tell you that I have used those skills so many times in my life since then, <laughs> but it just allowed us to, you know, my sister worked at the local convenience store and it, it just allowed us to provide for our young brothers, you know, to make yeah. sure that they would have what they needed. Yeah. Yeah. What an example you guys set. Okay. That's amazing. So your guardian angels are just phenomenal. So tell me about your move in high school. Like what happened that the family split and everybody was kind of separated? So the moment that my mother's addiction kind of hit a pinnacle, she went into a really dark place and it was probably about a decade before she came out of that uh, or started to come out of that. My, my sister was graduating from high school and her last 10 weeks of high school, she went to live with a wonderful family in Booker, Texas. And that family she's still deeply connected to today. She uh, still calls them mom and dad. And for me, I was a sophomore at the end of my, about 10 weeks out from completing my sophomore year. And some folks that lived in the town with us in Booker, Texas, Beth and Harry, and their son, Cody, I had connected with them and had a close relationship with that family. And so after I finished my sophomore year, uh, they invited me to come to Livingston, Texas and live with them, which they had moved there just prior to the end of my sophomore year, or just at the beginning of my sophomore year. 
But before that, and I want to share this because I remain connected to this person today, there was that 10-week gap between the time that everything really fell apart and when I went to live with Beth and Harry. And um, my high school guidance counselor, Mike Lee, who I recently reconnected with, he knew, I think in his very smart mind, he knew that success and all of the things, you know, I said school had become a haven for me. I think he knew that all the things that were happening in my life at that juncture would potentially negatively impact me if I did not see them through. Does that make sense? Like, right. He knew I had to finish what I started before I moved. At the time I had, you know, I was finishing up my track season. I was finishing up UIL competitions. We were in one act play. I had the opportunity to go to the Hugh O'Brien youth conference as a, a sophomore. And he wanted to see that through for me. Only one sophomore gets selected to go. So he really wanted to see that. He wanted me to see that through. And so he offered to have me move in for those 10 weeks with his in-laws and to stay in Booker for those 10 weeks, just to finish those things that I'd started to finish. So many of those things that had really kept me from drifting into the wrong place, right, in life. And it was, honestly, it was probably one of those important moments that that kept me on the right path, right? That, that uh, defined my trajectory. So I'm forever grateful to him for that. Yeah, that's awesome. What a guardian angel. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. So, I mean, you saw that education was the key. Yeah. And you went on to A&M University. Tell me about your choice in going there. I mean, how did we not ever talk about these things? I don't remember talking about all of this. Like I was going to go to Texas Women's University because it was the best school for the physical therapy in the state of Texas. Like that was it for me. And I don't think I paid attention to anybody else's decisions. Like, and there's many in our class who went there. So tell me about your decision to go there. Cause you were in love with Texas A&M before you even got there. <laughs> I was, and I feel like I have to admit something in this moment that I've never admitted out loud. And I think maybe my fellow Aggies from Texas A&M will maybe disown me after this uh, moment. But I wasn't originally going to go to Texas A&M. I was originally planning on, and I had a scholarship ready to go from, you know, that other little school in Texas called the University of Texas. (laughs) Wow. Yes, I I had this dream. I was going to be in politics and I felt like, you know, I needed to be in the of uh, the capital of Texas to really learn what I was going to do. And then our good friend, Jada, Jada Anderson, who was a dear friend to both of us, she asked me if I would just go on a field trip with her to Texas A&M and check it out with her. And so I said, yes. And I fell in love with it. I was there for a day. And I think all the, the high days, you know, walking down the street, everybody's saying, Heidi, Heidi, you're in there won me over and I just fell in love with it and actually changed my decision to go to Texas A&M. And I know we had talked a bit about this, but I also made the decision to make a shift as far as uh, the major that I was going to focus on early on. And that really stemmed from an experience I had in high school. We were in an AP psychology class and it was the first time I had been exposed to psychology. 
And really in that psychology class was the first time that I really started sensing potentially how my, the impacts of my childhood could, could provide roadblocks or, or put up roadblocks as I progressed in my life and how what I had experienced could potentially be damaging or could really, I could use it to my advantage. And so I wanted to continue pursuing psychology and understanding more about how my childhood might affect me. And so Texas A&M has an excellent psychology program, and I made the decision to get my undergraduate degree in psychology. And it was definitely one of the best decisions I've made, not just for myself, but certainly I've used that degree in so many different ways as I've progressed through my career. Yeah, well, just in how we relate to people and understanding leadership and team management, it's thick. So you graduated from A&M, and what was the first job you took? So my first job out of college, it's so interesting how all these things connect, but um, I was, let me, let me maybe give a little bit of background. After college, initially I thought I was going to go right into that next step, right? Getting a master's degree, going on, initially I was going to get a, a doctorate in psychology. That's where I thought I was going to go. But, you know, so many times in our lives, we're at these crossroads and we make a different decision. Yeah, the uh, sliding door. Yes, absolutely. And honestly, after college, I was tired. I was just tired. I had pushed so hard for so long and I really just needed a break. You know, so I went into the workforce. I went to Eaton Corporation as I went into a sales support role and later into sales with that, with that company. And it was a perfect place to start my career. And I have to give a shout out to the people that got me there. Tony Bourgeois, who was a professor in the psychology department at Texas A&M, knew that I needed a break and then had made the decision to change my direction, at least initially, and then I might get back to psychology, but it was just not the right time for me. And so he connected me with his daughter-in-law, Tracy Bourgeois, and she was running the team that I ended up going to work on at Eaton Corporation. And so really that connection with the psychology department at Texas A&M opened that door for me. And she also got her psychology degree from Texas A&M as well. Of course she did. Of course. (laughs) Being an Aggie is like having a community or family wherever you go in the world, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. That ring is very powerful. That Aggie ring is very powerful for sure. I went into the workforce, but it wasn't long before I got the itch to continue learning. So I know one of the themes, I guess, in my life is that education is so critical and so important. It's such a defining characteristic of who I am. And so that need to take a break didn't last very long. I think I really just needed to take a breather. And so I went back to school and I worked, I did that as I worked full time and I went on to earn my master's degree and my doctorate. And I really never looked back from that point. I knew that learning and education would always define me. Uh, It was during this time also that my mom overcame her addiction and she came back to us, which was an amazing thing. And even though it took some time for us to mend what was broken, we did. And she never stopped apologizing for the pain that she had caused us and for how we had grown up. But just before she died, I had the opportunity to tell her what she had meant to me and what her example had meant to me. I had the chance to tell her that I got my grit from her. Mm -hmm. I learned from her how to work hard and how to be resilient. And I told her that she's the one that taught me to always work on myself first before looking to fix others. 
And so no matter what had happened in that period of our life, I attribute so much of who I am to my, to my young mother that, that really just had such a hard time, had a hard life herself, but she taught me so much. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad that you were able to have that full circle. Okay, so moving forward, you were recently, your most recent position is pretty interesting. And I feel like it was like what you were always meant to do. And you had these bigger dreams. So just tell us about your experience with Girl Scouts of America. Okay, so I, I actually started, I shifted from Eaton and went straight into nonprofit work. And so for really the last 20 years of my career, I've worked in the nonprofit sector in three large federated, national federated nonprofit systems. And most recently uh, was Girl Scouts of the USA. But I started as a, a chief operating officer at a local Girl Scout council where really had the opportunity to get my hands dirty in the work of leading a, a large nonprofit or being a leader in a large nonprofit and finding out what really truly works in making an organization grow and what, what holds it back. And at all the junctures in my career and all the different environments I've worked in, I continue to come back to this space that leadership matters. And that seems very simple. In essence, right? Leadership matters. I'm sure we all know that. But maybe even more to a greater degree, from my perspective, it became a much uh, deeper understanding that who is at the helm of an organization and how they approach the work that they do and how they show up every day and what choices they make for their organization will make or break them, will truly determine their trajectory, will either hold them back and keep them stagnant or push them through some of the most difficult situations that they'll encounter. And so when I went to Girl Scouts of the USA, I had such a unique opportunity. One of my still mentors, Carrie Connolly, saw something in me. She saw that my philosophies around leadership and around organizational development could really help the movement. And so she gave me the opportunity to join the consulting team. And then later on, I became the leader of the leadership consulting arm for Girl Scouts of the USA. And what I did in that role was I had the opportunity to actually support the 111 Girl Scout councils and their CEOs and boards around the country and be a thought partner to them, work through organizational change efforts with them, help them in spaces of growth and also spaces of decline, but really having the opportunity to kind of test my theories on leadership on a daily basis. So lots of fun, never boring and certainly some of the most meaningful work of my life. That's awesome. It's so awesome. Now, when we were in our first year or two of college, you said something about wanting to have a kid's camp. Do you remember this conversation? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. What was that big dream? Well, I always saw the value of kids being outdoors and learning, learning in nature. And that never changed. I think in every, every nonprofit I've worked for, we've had work with camps and with outdoor learning. And with Girl Scouts, it's a huge part of the work is to, yes, learn STEM, but learn STEM in the outdoors. Yes, learn about arts and craft, but learn arts and crafts in the outdoors. Learn leadership and entrepreneurship in the outdoors as, because they're such an, a, an amazing, really, canvas 
to absorb knowledge. And so I've always loved that. Now, I've never had the opportunity to see it through, but certainly when I worked at the Y and we built YMCA Camp Wataya, and I had the opportunity to be a part of that life-changing project. Uh, while it wasn't my camp, it was certainly a camp that I had my fingerprints on. And so I got to see that important work come, come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I know it's impacted so many other kids' lives. It's just awesome. So let's talk about this pivot in the middle of a pandemic. Very much like me, you have made a decision to start your own business in the middle of a pandemic. Are we cray cray? <laughs> yes, you inspired me, Carolyn. You inspired me. <laughs> what in the world? Now, this was a dream. This has been a dream of yours for a while to do your own consulting business. So seeing you just go for it is fantastic. Tell me about that. The pivot, like what was the, that defining moment when you said now is the time? So interesting. So I always said that this was my five-year plan that became my right now plan. And I think, you know, during the pandemic was such a moment of truth for so many of us. There were so many things that happened that pushed us to look at ourselves and look at our lives to make sure, honestly, we were making the right decisions. I think when you daily face this question of if you're going to be here for your children and if you're going to have the chance to realize your dreams and if you're truly going to do what you were meant to do, you can either stop wasting time mm-hmm. or you can take action or you can be overtaken by the pressure. And I think there was a lot of pressure in these past 13, 14 months. And in an article I recently published uh, on LinkedIn, I shared a quote by Anne Frank And I think that kind of defines that moment for me. The quote was, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. And I think the decision I made, the day I made the decision to start my company, Present Leadership, really had been building an intensity for months. Mm -hmm. I knew, I knew in that moment when I made the decision, I was not doing enough to improve the world. From my perspective, improving the world would be building better organizations, whether they be nonprofit organizations or for-profit organizations, because I had this vision to work with like-minded allies to restore this distinctive nature of leadership, you know, this, this concept of leadership that would take these organizations to the next level so that we serve more people and change more lives. That's awesome. Like what a grand vision. <laughs> like you're not looking just at your community. You're looking more global. I love it. I love it. Okay. So we're going to shift gears for a minute and we're going to talk about mom life. Okay. Because we're both mamas. You became a mama. Were you officially advanced maternal age whenever you became a mama? I was, I was right there. I hit the cusp when I became pregnant. They gave me that fun news the first day (laughs) I went to the doctor. So advanced maternal age. Yes. You know, for the, uh, for me, for the longest time, my baby was my dissertation. As I know, you know, you know, my baby was that book and, uh, I just held on to it for a long time before deciding to become a mom. So, right. Right. So mom life is unpredictable and it definitely shifts and changes our perspective and kind of how we approach life and priorities, even when it becomes, comes to work. So how do you feel like your idea of leadership and your leadership of a mom, like, how do you feel like that's kind of come together? Oh gosh, that's such a, that's such a good question. I think uh, I always go back to what I've learned as a result of how I grew up. And there's a lot of linkages between my philosophies around leadership and also my 
philosophies around being a parent. No matter what pain I endured growing up or even in my marriage, which was already significantly struggling when I found out that I was pregnant with Maddie, I knew it wasn't a mistake. I mean, Maddie is truly the light of my life. She is helping me become the woman and the mom that I was always meant to be. And she really is the greatest gift that I've been given. And it's not lost on me how important that responsibility is. When I think about the linkage of leadership to that, I go back to that lesson I shared with you about what my mom taught me. You know, the, the lesson that I learned from her about hard work and being resilient. And when I told her that she was the one who taught me to always work on myself before looking to fix others, that really is the foundation of my philosophy around leadership is that, and around being a mom, is that I have to look to myself, right? How can I fix the situation? How can I improve myself? And then how can I feed others in my life, whether it be my, my sweet daughter, my husband, Brian, or whether it be my team, right? The members of my team and the other members of the organization or even the community members that I'm working with. How can I first look to myself? and being able to be the best person I can be to support and and better their lives. I love that concept because so often moms are just, they have mom guilt around everything and especially taking time for self, right? Or self-development, or if they're working, they have the guilt, they wish they were home. And if they're home, they feel like they're missing out. And I say that with all sincerity, because I've done a combination of both, you know, after five years in primary OB-GYN practice, I started doing hospitalist work and being the primary parent at home and doing shifts at night. And, and I felt like my career is passing me by. So I get, I get it. I'm saying it from a place of full humility and understanding. I've been there sister, <laughs> but you know, I got, I got really teary eyed when you were saying how, you know, she pushes you to be the best version of yourself because it is so true. She was not a mistake. You know, your people say, you know, my failed marriage. Well, I mean, some success came from that marriage, right? <laughs> like it didn't work out in the long run, but so, and I feel the same way because my first marriage ended as well. And I have a 16 year old from that relationship and I, I completely get it. I, I empathize with where you've been and, and where you're going. And I think it's important for women to see that there is another side to that that you will grow and evolve and you can find love again and you, you know, that you can learn to parents to the best of your ability. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that sometimes it is just all so much and we do need a break and we do need to really nurture ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that we can get to others. I think going back to our conversation about the pandemic, I feel like she was home with me most of the time you know, and I had to, we, as many women and men have had to do, we have to balance sometimes these very big jobs, you know, with learning how to do common core math. Thank the good Lord for Google. I mean, I don't (laughs) know how I would have gotten through this past year without Google, but I felt like I, going back to that kind of that um, awareness, I felt in some ways I failed her, you know, because I, the frustration can sometimes build to be so much, you know, just when you're balancing so many competing priorities and you're so distracted. And so part of my decision to make the shift also gave me the opportunity to prioritize what matters in my life. And, you know, that, that has, and will always be my family. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
Yeah, I do think that the pandemic has given us time. I mean, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it just given us time and a pause to kind of slow down and reevaluate. And it has been extremely overwhelming for so many to figure out how are we supposed to mom and teach and work and <laughs> like here are your new five assignments. There is no pay increase. <laughs> there is no assistant. Good luck. <laughs> We're probably going to take a few people away from you and we're going to give you more responsibilities. Yeah. Figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, what is, who is your ideal client with your new consulting firm? Oh, I've been grappling with this quite a bit and believe it or not, I'm starting a new business, but I am, I am willing and have already turned work away. And the reason why is because I'm going to be really stingy with this concept of leader first. What I mean by that is if the leader is unwilling to, again, look to themselves first to figure out what part are they playing in, whether it be their organizational decline or the thing that is potentially holding their organization back, I'm going to give them the recommendation of where they need to work first. And if they're unwilling to do that, I know that my efforts with them will be unsustainable. And I'm not willing to go down that path anymore. That's part of the reason I wanted to make this shift was so that I could get organizations to focus in the right place first. And so my ideal client, I would say individual from a first perspective, would be that leader that recognizes that much of this falls to them, right? That they have to make the right decisions and in the right sequence in order to truly have the right impact on their organization. I'm also not looking to work for clients that want quick and easy fixes, because frankly, that's not the thing that creates enduring growth in organizations. I'm looking for the organizations that want to play the long game and leaders that know that they have to put in the work both on themselves and with their senior teams and beyond their senior teams in order to create that enduring growth and to be around, you know, to be around and be thriving in a hundred years from now. Yeah. Awesome. So Jess, tell us how others can find you where they can work with you. So I, you know, right out of the box, I didn't expect to have clients, but I do, which is fantastic. So I have not yet had the opportunity to launch a website. I am working on that, but I've been pretty busy since all this got started. So right now, the best way to be in touch with me is to connect through LinkedIn. And of course, my name is spelled with one S, it's J-E-S, DeShields. And you can find me on LinkedIn that way or through email. And my email is J-E-S at Crescent dash leadership.com. So either of those will work. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, honestly, just grit and grace. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's always great to talk to you and reconnect, but certainly it's an honor to be asked to be a part of this important messaging that you're getting out to women and, and to the rest of the world. Yeah, well, there is power in our shared lived experiences and um, just showing what is possible, right? If they can't see you, they can't be you. And you're being an example for so many girls across the country. And I just think it's amazing. So thank you so much for being here today. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. 
As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.